Alright. I, I am totally with Bill and Marilyn on this. Although that is chaotic and loud, it is also a beautiful thing to be part of hearing those sounds. Um, so today we're looking, as you guys know, at blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And I wanted I wanted to be really brief. I think my plan Come on in. Um, <laughs> I think my plan for this series is really to, as I've said, let people be heard. And I was tempted to just let uh, what Jan said be kind of the end of it, and I might do that in some weeks to come. But I've also prepared a little bit, and I thought I would share just briefly. So I have this, uh, and as Jan mentioned, I, I'm getting rid of righteousness and putting in restorative justice. Um, so a number of theologians and writers that I, I read made the point that righteousness in English gives off an impression, right? We think of personal virtue, self-righteousness. Um, instead, many of the people that I was reading suggest that we render it as justice in English. And by justice, the reason that I put restorative justice here is because it's the justice of scripture, which is about rescue and release and restoration for the oppressed and for the powerless. But I worried that I was doing this just because this is easier for me. I'm more comfortable talking about God's justice than I am about our righteousness. Um, and maybe that it was just a tactic that I had to get away from having to talk about righteousness. Um, I, I think the more that I read, however, I was convinced that Christ is explicitly talking about hungering and thirsting for God's right view of the world. Um, which is, of course, encapsulated and held up in his deliverance and his rescue in the very person of Jesus Christ. It is not moral righteousness alone, but social righteousness. Our involvement in this kind of restorative work, our hungering and our thirsting for things to be set right, leads us, I think, like Jan was sharing, out into the world um, to see God's kingdom come. Now, I found myself in some really unexpected territory. So, Dave, if you want to go across. Uh, I did not expect to be reading Luther for this sermon or any sermon. Um, but more than 500 years ago, even Luther recognized the trap of reading righteousness as personal virtue. He says, righteousness must here not be understood as just Christian righteousness in general, whereby the person becomes holy and acceptable before God. Understand that this is the meaning of these words. He, by which he means people, are really a blessed people who perseveringly and carefully strive to seek the general welfare of everyone and who carries this out in both in words and in deed, with counsel and with action. So in other words, righteousness must be understood as seeking the good for all, not just personal good, but good for the world of seeking God's right way for his created order. God's justice restores people into right relation with him, with the world, and with one another. Um, and then Luther says this later on, and I thought this was lovely because it uses language that maybe we think is relatively like new, but it's obviously not. The hands and feet, right? Offer both your hands and your feet and your whole body. You should have such a hunger and thirst that will never diminish or cease and which cannot be satisfied so that you care for nothing else except seeking and maintaining what is right. If one can make, cannot make the world entirely whole, let them do what they can. To hunger and thirst for justice, to yearn for a world where things are set right. 
Martin Luther points out that such a hunger can never be satisfied, which then put me into more sticky territory because I thought, well, this beatitude expressly says they will be satisfied. Um, but the reference to hungering and thirsting, and this is, um, I had a really lovely email from Marilyn who said she appreciated when I did this, so I'm going to talk about the Greek. Um, the, the hungering and thirsting in our text is expressed in what are called uh, present active participles, which you don't need to know or care about. Uh, suffice to say that in, when they happen in Greek, not in English, but when we have, have these words in Greek, it means that they happen all the time continuously. So it's not just blessed are those who hunger and thirst right now, but stretched out into the future. So we might read it instead as this. Blessed are those who keep on hungering and thirsting for justice, for they will be satisfied. Okay. Uh, we still have this trouble of satisfaction. What does it mean to be satisfied as we go on hungering and thirsting? As I've said a lot of times across this series, there are these really key, beautiful passages from the Old Testament that are looming in the Beatitudes. Jesus is leaning back into the Psalms, into Isaiah, into Proverbs, and it's likely that his hearers and Christ himself would have heard and recognized these echoes of old, familiar passages of Scripture. It is the presence of old covenant promises that help clarify the kind of Jesus, uh, the kind of kingdom that Jesus is announcing. So the obvious um, echo in this beatitude is from Psalm 107, verse 9, which is this. He satisfies the thirsty and fills the hunger, um, and fills the hunger with good things. And Proverbs 21, 21, whoever pursues righteousness and love finds life, prosperity, and honor. And finally, there's the key passage that Jesus is referring to throughout the Beatitudes, Isaiah 61, which says, For as the soil makes the sprout come up and a garden causes seeds to grow, so the sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before all nations. Okay, so what kinds of people are satisfied by this hungering and thirsting? Those who are hungering and thirsting for justice, right relationship with God, restoration, renewal. And what will they be satisfied with? With God's righteous saving activity, with the kingdom that Christ is announcing. So I've put up here, this is my really long, awkward version now of this beatitude, but I'm going to trim it again. Blessed are those who keep on hungering and thirsting for the restorative justice of God, for they will be satisfied by God's righteousness, and they will be called out to be his hands and his feet in the world. They will be satisfied as they seek first the kingdom. They will be satisfied by participating in the work that God is already doing. And of course, this satisfaction is not just, it's not security, right? It's not comfort or ease. Um, instead, God's people are satisfied only as they hunger and thirst for the restorative justice and love of God. And this is, this is hard, I think. I think this has a lot of implications for my own life because I have a lot of other hungers, I have to say. I have a lot of things that motivate me, um, things that I yearn for, things that I desire that are not satisfiable unless they're turned toward the God that satisfies. Um, and I think that this beatitude is a kind of check on my appetite, right? What am I hungering and thirsting for? 
is a part of God's kingdom plan. So, if we're going to reframe this beatitude in light of a hunger and a thirst for kingdom righteousness, I wanted to end with a really sticky, strange, odd parable that articulates what that justice looks like in God's kingdom. And I thought to myself, what kind of kingdom is Christ announcing? What, are the, what kind of fairness, what kind of justice, kind of equity? Who is in, who is out? Um, I don't know if people know this parable very well, but this is from Matthew 20. And it says this, The kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About nine in the morning, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again at about noon and about three in the afternoon and did the same thing. About five in the afternoon, he went out and found still others standing around. So he's you know, gone out onto the beach at this point, right? And looked at folks lounging about and said, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received a denarius. So, or a denarius, I should say. I'm, I'm sounding like I'm reading from Game of Thrones there. Okay, that's an in-joke. Now I know who, now I know who, who pirates. Um, so when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more, but each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. Those who were hired last worked only one hour. They said, and you've made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, I'm not being unfair to you, friend. Uh, and that friend I've italicized uh, because apparently in the Greek, it's kind of like buddy or pal, right? Um, so there's a hint of rebuke here. I'm not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? And then Matthew adds this little single line. He says, so the last will be first and the first will be last. This is, I think, a puzzling parable for us and undoubtedly for the disciples who are hearing it, uh, who have been bred to understand fairness as getting what you deserve. Just like the first hired workers, I suspect that many of us would grumble at this arrangement. It's unjust. But the landowner knows what counts as justice. He says, I will pay you whatever is right. He says, I am not being unfair to you, friend, friends. Justice and fairness in the kingdom of heaven is not equal pay for equal work. It is an economy of grace. It is not about rewards for the rewardable, but justice for the last and the least and the lost. And this is the justice that we're called to hunger and thirst for, which is, again, why I say it's sticky. It's not fair justice. It's God's justice. The lateness uh, in this parable really struck me because I think we're comfortable enough with God looking after the weak and the vulnerable and the oppressed, but potentially, or maybe I'm just being honest here, less comfortable with God looking after the 
underserving or the latecomers. Um, and one way to understand this parable is to think about that, den that denarius, right? Which is one day's pay. It's an, it's, so it's the idea of um, subsistence pay, right? Enough for a day. At the end of the parable, the money is offered first to people who came last. And those were the people who would have anticipated for a whole day not having enough, right? All the way up to 5 p.m., not having enough to live off. The landowner goes to the people who are most at risk first. He pays the latecomers a full day's wage. They didn't work with a contract, they didn't have an agreement, they took what they could before nightfall. And now what do they get? A full day's wage, enough to feed their families. Everybody eats tonight. That is God's justice. And the laborers who had worked since sunrise, well, they probably wanted 12 times as much. Um, they see the rewards for the latecomers and they do what probably I would do. They start to calculate. All right, all right. So I'm getting, yes, 12 times as much. Unfortunately, God's kingdom is not based on the economics of proportionality. The landowner gives those first laborers, those who agreed to work the full day, uh, exactly what he told them he would, which is one denarius, which is justice. The kingdom of heaven is like this, Jesus says, and it's not what we expect. We, uh, the ones that we might consider totally unworthy or undeserving tend to rank right up there at the front of the line. God's justice does not match our standards of equality. This new way of living is not based upon rewards for good deeds. It's not a principle of proportionality, as I said. It's a kind of upside-down economics. It's an economy of grace where God showers generosity on those who might least deserve it and at the same time is unfailingly trustworthy to those who have nothing left, nothing to count on, nothing to hold on to at the end of the day. God's reign is characterized by restorative justice. First will be last. Last will be first. Now, our beatitude does not say blessed are the just. Do you notice that? Um, might put it back up. It doesn't say blessed are the just or blessed are those even who do justice. It says that God commends the ongoing seeking of justice. Another saying that we see later in the Sermon on the Mount reflects a very similar kind of wisdom. You might know it. Jesus is talking about anxiety and he tells his listeners, don't worry about life, don't worry about food, don't worry about clothing. Look at the birds of the air, look at the lilies of the field. Do not seek after food or clothing, but seek first God's kingdom and God's justice and all the rest will be given. Blessing in this sense comes from seeking and striving and hungering and thirsting. Christ's sermon, as I've said, is not an analysis of our world as it is, but it's an announcement of the kingdom. This kingdom is not a place that we reach, but it's a way to follow. Living this beatitude, I don't think is easy. This is a hard beatitude. Not that there's an easy beatitude, but this one's sticky because it calls upon us not to trust in our own goodness or our good work, but in God's extravagant and dependable grace. So my hope is for me and for us that we be people who go on hungering and thirsting for restorative justice. Um, I'm so thankful to Jan for giving us one concrete way and for Lyndall another. So I had some questions and I'll, I'll probably pop them in the newsletter because I always ask too many questions. It's a habit of mine. Um, 
But these are some questions that I had for myself, and so I thought I would share them with us. Do we, and maybe I can insert, do I, uh, struggle with the unfairness of kingdom grace, its wide embrace, and the failure of our goodness to save us? How might we better love those that we consider unlovely and unworthy and undeserving? What does it look like to have a deep and enduring appetite for justice? What might it look like for you or for me in our lives to join in seeing the least be restored into community? How might we partner with others in seeing the oppressed rescued? Who are the powerless in our communities and how can we join with them and see the justice of God's kingdom come? So those are, my, those, are those uh, questions that were raised for me and maybe what I will do is I will pray for us because I think I need prayer in this one. Um, and then I'll just invite us to take a couple of minutes, if that's possible. I don't know if you, Lyndall, what do you think? Take a couple of minutes. Maybe pick one question to not share, but just dwell on independent of one another. And then when a little bit of time has elapsed, we might sing a final song. But let me pray for us in this, uh, because it turns out I think that sometimes we struggle the most, at least I struggle the most, uh, at accepting the kind of grace that <laughs> it has nothing to do with me or my good works, but only on uh, an extravagant and reckless loving God. So let's pray. God, we thank you that your justice doesn't look like our idea of justice, at least not our worldly idea. We don't get what we deserve, and thank goodness for that. God, we thank you for your overwhelming, enduring, dependable, precious, perfect grace. Christ not only embodied but called out in this sermon a kingdom that looked like no other kingdom and a king that looks like no other king. Thank you, God, that as we work through these Beatitudes, as we look forward to your intervention in our world in the form of a child, that we saw that you came as the lowly and the last, that you were oppressed, that you were an outsider that you embodied this so that we might know and understand who it is that we are called to love and how it is that we are called to be in this world. Not as the powerful, but as those who relinquish our power. Not as the unjust, but as those who seek justice that restores all people. God, we ask and pray that you would help us be people of the kingdom who are active in seeking righteousness, that is, justice. That we might be the hearts the hands, the heads, those that move out into our communal spaces and think and practice and try, God, knowing that your grace is sufficient in our failure to see your kingdom come, to seek justice and to go on hungering and thirsting after it. For your kingdom's sake and in your power, 